Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary and every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey, let's make it 23, shall we? Yes, indeed. Uh, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio jumping into the Democratic primary this week. Candidate number 23. He makes that announcement just about an hour from now on ABC's Good Morning America and then heads off to Iowa and South Carolina. Hey, where else? We've seen this train before, huh? Uh, 22 other times. Hello, everybody. Here we go, the Bill Press Show. On a big Thursday, Thursday, May 16, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., as always, our nation's capital, with all the news of the day uh, and um, and then more, uh, with a great lineup of guests today. And, of course, looking forward to hearing back from you, big stories of the day, of course. Uh, the governor of Alabama, no surprise. She has long been an uh, anti-choice person in her political life. Kay Ivey signing that uh, extreme, extreme, heartless, cruel measure passed by the Alabama legislature to totally ban uh, a woman's right to seek an abortion for any reason whatsoever uh, in the state of Alabama. Uh, that's that. That sends a big chill through Think about it. For 46 years, 46 years, any woman under the age of 46 has not lived in an America where uh, where, Roe v, where abortion was illegal. And that could change. We're one court case away from it now. Very, very scary. I was keeping your eye on that. What's happening with uh, the threat to do some kind of military action against Iran in the Middle East that John Bolton is cooking up? And yes, Bill de Blasio jumping into the presidential race, all of that coming up and more and all of that you are going to want to comment on uh, at BP Show on Twitter, at BP Show. Send us your comments. But first, this is the Full okay. Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making yes. news. Yes, indeed. Uh, so in the art world, you know the artist Jeff Koons, a yes. uh, controversial artist in a lot yeah. of ways. Well, yesterday he sold a new 
piece of art. Well, not a new in piece Bilbao, of art. he's got this great big dog in front yeah. of the Bilbao Museum. He has a yeah. couple pieces here around the D.C. area. Yeah. He has one yeah. at the Glenstone Museum. He has uh, one outside the Hirshhorn. Uh, but his, one of his more famous uh, pieces is a piece called Rabbit. It's a stainless steel casting of an inflatable rabbit. It looks like a inflatable balloon, like a balloon animal. Well, yesterday it sold at Christie's in New York for $91.1 million. My God. That is the highest price ever paid for a piece of art by a living artist. Was it paid uh, bought by a Saudi prince? <laughs> well, Probably. They, they didn't disclose who the buyer was uh, in the story, but uh, wow, that's a lot of money. Man. Who is that kind of museum? Uh, that kind of money, not museums. No, certainly not. No, no I don't know who. I mean, I, I don't know who would pay night. To Saudi or a Japanese, you know, plutocrat. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked about Burger King in recent weeks. They're doing their Impossible Burger, the Impossible Whopper. They're going to be rolling out. Well, they now have me out. they now have a new plan. It's called the Traffic Jam Whopper. Uh, uh, okay, is this also meatless burger? No, no, it's going to be a meat burger. Oh. But here's the thing. <laughs> they tested this out in Mexico City. They're going to roll it out in Los Angeles. They will be delivering food to drivers caught in traffic. Oh, my God. And they said that they have motorcyclists. Yeah. That they will, you know, you can order on the Burger King app. Yeah, They'll right. find your closest one. They'll get your location using GPS data. They will dispatch someone on a motorcycle who can go through the lanes, find your car, deliver your burger and fries while you sit in traffic. Meanwhile, the future is here, Bill. <laughs> yeah, yes and no. I, I, th- this is. I'm a, not saying it's good. I'm just this saying. This is that, idiotic. You know why? Because. What if you, you order your burger and then suddenly the gridlock eases sure. up? You're, what are you going to sit there and wait for your burger? Yeah, right. Hell hey, no. You're right. going to take off, right? <laughs> this is the Bill Press Show. How extreme is that anti-abortion measure passed by the state of Alabama? So extreme that even Pat Robertson, even the Reverend Pat Robertson says it goes too far. What do you say, folks? Hello, hello, hello. Here we go. It is the Bill Press Show on a Thursday, May 16. Good to see you today and welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us online. Thanks for joining us on television. Thanks for joining us on radio all across this great land of ours as we bring you the news of the day and look forward to hearing from you, as always, in your comments on the news of the day on Twitter, at uh, BP Show. Yes, online. We're there with you on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. On the radio statewide in Indiana, on Indiana Talks, and in Chicago. Hello, Chicago, and all the greater Chicago area on the big WCPT, Progressive Voice of Chicago. Uh, and looking at you on television on Free Speech TV. Yes, the situation. Uh, a lot of tension in the Middle East over the United States. Uh, saber rattling there against Iran. Uh, lots of comments yesterday. Republicans remaining um, uh, uncharacteristically quiet, maybe, about the Alabama anti-abortion law. But Democratic candidates across the board uh, can condemning it. And meanwhile... 
a new entry into the 2020 presidential race with Bill de Blasio making it official today. Uh, all of that big news. But, you know, we start today. I want you to pay careful attention here. We start today with some really big news about the Bill Press show. Uh, really exciting news because starting next month, we're going to be taking, uh, we're just making this announcement today for the first time, we're going to be taking the Bill Press show starting next month to a whole new level, a whole new platform, a whole new way of engaging with you, particularly uh, in the 2020 presidential election, of course, starting with the uh, Democratic primary. So starting the first week in June, we're going to be launching a new podcast, actually a series of podcasts, uh, which will be focused particularly on the 2020 presidential election, again, starting with the uh, Democratic primary and all the tw now 23 uh, presidential candidates. Uh, and we'll be looking at that in a couple of, at least a couple of ways. One, uh, my interviews with some of the leading players in the, uh, in the 2020 scene. Uh, and uh, also one very, very special podcast, which I can't tell you about yet, but we're going to announce very, very soon. Uh, where we'll be taking, uh, joining all the 2020 presidential candidates, every every last 23rd of them. So uh, this is very, very exciting. Uh, I think great, great news. Again, taking the Bill Press Show to a whole new level of engagement. But what I need from you, first of all, we want and need all of you who've been following us, watching us, listening, uh, joining us uh, every day to Continue along in the new format. So if you haven't already signed up for our podcast, please, got to do so. We've got another couple of weeks to do so, but do it today. Go to uh, BillPressShow.com, sign up for the podcast. Uh, and also, follow me on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter, at BP Show. At BP Show, you know, it's easy enough. You know how to do it. Uh, make sure you follow us on Twitter. So therefore, that's the way you'll find out how, when, and where to follow us and be a part of and to engage in this uh, whole new format. Of course, that does mean that our daily show, uh, these it used to be three, and now these two hours that we have spent together uh, to start your day every day, will no longer be there um, starting, actually, well, let's say the last show will be May 31st, Friday, May 31st, the last daily show. But again, I want to emphasize that daily show may be going away. I'm not going away. The Bill Press show, Bill Press and Friends, is not going away. We're just moving to a whole new look, a whole new format. I am not going away. We're going to still be there with you at least once, probably twice a week, as close as your smartphone. That's where you get your podcast. It'll be there with you as close as your smartphone. It'll be like Bill Press on Demand, we could call it, right? Bill Press on Demand. So very, very exciting. I believe really this is the, I've been covering a lot of them. This is the most exciting Democratic presidential primary that I've seen. I think any of us have seen with all these great candidates. I want to be right there in the middle of it. And I think the best way to do so is through our new podcast. Uh, that'll start the first week of June, last show on our daily show together. After 14 golden years, <clears throat> will be May 31st. And Peter Ogburn's been there from day one. Peter, it's just you and me, the last of the Mohicans. Yeah, right? right? This is it. <clears throat> think <laughs> of all those it. other people I kind of joined us along the way. Yeah, right. Great. Great team. We have, you know. Oh, yeah. 
and man. I, some of them have gone on to bigger and better things, A right? lot of them have gone on to other things. A lot yeah. of them are lifelong friends of ours. Yeah. I, I was saying to uh, someone yesterday, actually, uh, when I first uh, started talking to you about coming to, From, to, to do this job, I was in San Antonio. San Antonio, and right. I remember the very first phone call we had, uh, I was uh, holding my three-month-old child when you called. Yes. And uh, next year, that, gray, that tiny gray, little child, yes. Gray, he goes to high school. <laughs> That's how long we've been doing this. Uh, it's It really is mind-blowing, and it's been a great 14 years. Yeah. with uh, And we started out over at the Center for American Progress yeah. uh, for three hours every morning, right? <laughs> Moved over here to Capitol Hill 10 years ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. a little over 10 years ago. Yeah, right. Uh, for three hours, then we moved to the new two-hour format, and now we're just yet yet another format. You know, this, the media the, is evolving. The media is evolving, and the key to staying young is to reinvent yourself <laughs> every once right. in a while, right? So, yeah, this anyhow. show has reinvented itself <laughs> more times than I can remember. All right, but again, please, uh, if you haven't already done so, sign up for the podcast so we you can stay with us and. Uh, those uh, follow us on Twitter too uh, at BP Show and thank you, thank you for hanging in there for so many years, all of you. And again, we continue together just in a little slightly different format, uh, right in the middle of this uh, 2020 election. Now let's get to some of the news of the day. Yes, indeed, I uh, was on NPR yesterday afternoon on Here and Now. Some of you may have heard it, and we talked about this uh, this absolutely horrendous, drastic, heartless, cruel measure passed uh, in Alabama. Uh, you know, I, uh, Peter, you and I were both saying, w- watching the cable news yesterday, speculating about whether the governor of Alabama was going to sign that bill. I mean, Please. there was no doubt she was going to sign it, and she did. She, she couldn't six, wait to sign it. She couldn't wait, right? As soon as the you know the thing got on her desk, she signed it. But think about how heartless it is. I mean, it 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 bans uh, any any abortion any time after the egg first lands in the woman's womb, right? Uh, you know, in and um, the, the moment of conception from then on, no and no exceptions whatsoever, except in some cases to save the life of the mother. No exception for rape. No exception for incest. I mean, th- think about it. It really means. I know it's 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 harsh to put it that way. It really means a thirteen-year-old girl, twelve-year-old girl, fourteen-year-old girl who's raped and impregnated by her father or her brother could be raped again by the state having to carry that baby all the way and basically destroying her life and God knows what kind of a life for that for that for that baby it is just again so cruel and heartless that listen to this even Pat Robertson crazy Pat Robertson yesterday had to say no Alabama you went too far I think Alabama has gone too far. They've passed a law that would give a 99-year prison sentence to people who could commit abortion. There's no exception for rape or incest. Uh, it's an extreme law, and they want to challenge Roe versus Wade. But my humble view <laughs> is that this is not the case we want to bring to the Supreme Court because I think this one will lose. So Alabama clearly, clearly going too far, but. What's really scary is that Alabama is not alone. Uh, so this, this, this goes, again, like total ban. But there are four states that have already passed this so-called fetal heartbeat legislation. Uh, ten states are considering that same legislation. 
which would um, move the time when a, a abortion would be considered viable um, from maybe 24 weeks where where the fetus is considered as a, could live outside the womb down and reduce that back down to the fetal first fetal heartbeat felt at about six weeks before most women even know they're pregnant uh, but that so ten four states have already passed that and ten states are considering it it is all part of a concerted effort on the part of these red states to get a case in front of the Supreme Court which will end up in overturning Roe v Wade and that's got to be a chilling effect, a chilling wake-up call for anybody who believes in women's rights and, and believes in reproductive rights and believes that a woman and not some judge or not some priest or not some even po- certainly any politician should control what happens to her body. It should be that woman's decision alone. And yesterday we saw again uh, who was who making these decisions. In Alabama, this bill was passed in the state Senate there are 35 members of the state Senate. It is, uh, there are 20, there are only eight, I believe, um, Democrats. And here we go, 35 members, yeah. Uh, eight Democrats, 27 Republicans. Two Republicans did not vote. So the bill was passed in the state Senate by 25 Republicans, all white men. Every single person that voted for this draconian measure in the Alabama state Senate, white male. So once again, here's the pattern. That's the way it used to be uh, before the Supreme Court acted in 1973, white men determining what happens to women's bodies, not the women having no control themselves. And these red states now want to go back to that day, uh, back to beyond 1973. And with this John Roberts Supreme Court, that means... Got to face the music. We are one court case away, one court case away from overturning Roe v. Wade. That's how scary it is. So think about that next time you're considering whom to support for 20, in 2020. Uh, how uh, next time think about that when you want to when you when you when you say it doesn't make make any difference which side wins. Yes, it does. It makes a difference who makes the next appointment to the Supreme Court. Uh, of the United States. Uh, so that's a wake-up call. The other thing is, I have to tell you, not that everything is political, but this is a disaster for the Republican Party. This is the last thing the Republican Party needs. We know, we saw what happened in 2018. Suburban, Repub- or suburban women, educated suburban women, who were there for Donald Trump in 2016, deserted the party because of Donald Trump's eccentricities and just crazy policies, deserted the party, and a lot of it over climate change, and a lot of it over health care, health care. This is a health care issue, what Alabama did. These women deserting the Republican Party. Republican Party has got to get them back in 2020, and now here they are through Alabama and these other states making abortion number one, a, one, of, the, one of the big issues, if not the number one issue, uh, in 2020. So the Republican Party, and you know, basically having walked away from beating that abortion drum too loudly, now they're back at it, full-time, full-tilt boogie, and that's what they're going to have to run on in 2020 uh, as a disaster. That's why the Republicans yesterday, Donald Trump, notice, not one tweet about what happened in Alabama, because he knows politically it is poison. 
Yeah, it may, it may, his base may be happy with it, but not, not the majority of Americans, and not the people that he's got to pull back in that he lost in twenty. Uh, the Republican Party lost in twenty eighteen. Uh, so, but we'll be watching that effort uh, from a policy point of view, from a political uh, point of view. Meanwhile, bad news, uh, really bad news. And I would hope uh, it would trigger even more political activity on the part of women, more women to get out and vote, more women to get out and volunteer, more women to get out and run for political office because uh, these retrograde forces are out to get you. Uh, by the way, just think about it. That was 1973. That's yesterday. So any woman in America today younger than 46 has not known a day when abortion was illegal. But that's, the, that's certainly the vast majority of American women today, and the Republican Party wants to reverse that. Again, political suicide and wrong, wrong, wrong. On another issue... Uh, we don't know what's happening in Iran, but boy, we talked about this yesterday. So just reviewing, backing up a little bit, John Bolton, the national security advisor, uh, has come up with a plan that is on, uh, under consideration at the White House, uh, to send 125,000 American troops to the Middle East, not to invade Iran but to be nearby in case we feel we should invade Iran or Iran does something that we think is so outrageous, uh, like they fire on one of our ships. Notice they haven't done so yet, but we think that they might someday. So therefore, John Bolton says we have to send 125 troops out there. The Washington Post reports this morning that Donald Trump uh, is not happy with John Bolton because he thinks he is um, uh, raising the threat of war um, too loudly, uh, and that the American people, this is not what the American people want. And yet, it was Donald Trump at one time who talked about going to war against North Korea, remember? Uh, it was Donald Trump who said the military option against Venezuela is on the table. So it's not crazy to think that Donald Trump could seriously be considering that John Bolton's right, we got to do something about Iran, uh, which Anybody who thinks that war against Iran would be as easy as the war against Iraq or pushing Iraq out of Kuwait with the first Gulf War are just kidding themselves. Iran is a strong nation with a strong, big military, Navy and Air Force and a ground troops. Uh, that would be a protected war, which would require hundreds of thousands of Americans in some ground war, as if uh, the American people were ready for that. Uh, and remember, Donald Trump has said he wanted to get out of the wars we're in and not start any new ones. So it's a real, if you will, um, uh, it's a scary, scary situation that this even being considered and has put the White House in a real box about um, whether they're going to follow John Bolton or maybe come to their senses. Uh, on a couple of other fronts, we saw yesterday... Um, the reaction I mentioned, uh, Democratic candidates who were quick to condemn what happened in Alabama, uh, Donald Trump and most Republicans in the Senate um, just refusing to comment, uh, but also on the Democratic front yesterday. Uh, Reuters and Ipsos are out with a new poll this morning 
on the Democratic primary that shows, again, Joe Biden holding on with a pretty commanding lead, uh, not as big as the Politico poll we quoted yesterday, uh, but in this latest Reuters poll, they do a monthly poll of de- among Democratic voters. Biden is at 29 percent. Bernie Sanders at 13 percent. Biden went up from 24 before he announced to 29 now that he's in. Uh, Bernie stayed about the same. None, here's what's interesting, none of the other candidates have more than 6% in this poll. Not Elizabeth Warren, not Kamala Harris, not Beto O'Rourke, not Pete Buttigieg, none of them uh, more than uh, more than 6, 6%. Um, so again, another poll showing Biden with uh, a comfortable comfortable lead and, uh, and holding on. Uh, we mentioned yesterday that Steve Bullock, governor of Montana, had jumped into the race at the beginning of the week. Um, and we were sort of uh, per- wondering about the fact that, you know, getting in, pardon me, getting in that late, would he have any support at all? Uh, surprisingly, Steve Bullock uh, showed up with in Hollywood yesterday with some pretty strong support. Jeff Katzenberg, one of the co-founders of DreamWorks, uh, actor Jeff Bridges, came out supporting Steve Bullock, and they're holding a great big fundraiser in, in L.A. for Steve Bullock. So uh, governor from a red state, able to win in Trump territory. He says that's his strength. He knows how to bring people together, and uh, so he could end up being a player, even getting in that late. I was surprised Money to see that. Money goes really far, man, and Hollywood's got a lot of it. That's right. That's right. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, as mystified as we were by Steve Bullock jumping in, uh, at the last minute, becoming number 22. Bill de Blasio today, in about a half an hour, will become number 23. Uh, it almost, Peter, leaked out by accident, right? That this story de- is so amazing. Yeah, You would think that the mayor of New York would have a, a better rollout strategy than he did, uh, but he is going to announce on Good Morning America this morning at 8.10 a.m. with George Stephanopoulos, uh, then he's going off with his wife to Iowa, and then they're going to South Carolina. This is his presidential rollout, which we learned about yesterday, not from the de Blasio campaign, Peter, you can tell the story, but from some teenager out in Iowa. So there was a high school student who, first of all, let's just say, uh, Good Morning America tweeted out that Bill de Blasio and his wife were going to be on this morning. So immediately everybody thinks, okay, well, this could be the announcement. But he's also on all the time, right? He's the mayor of New York. Well, like, you know, he was supposed to announce last week. He put it off. There's obviously been rumors that he was going to announce. So people started looking around and saying, oh, I wonder if this is going to be the big presidential announcement. So this high school student sees on Facebook uh, the Democratic Party of Iowa just sort of put out there, come join us at this event on Friday where – Bill de Blasio will make his first stop of his presidential announcement tour. <laughs> and this kid tweeted it out. And and a lot of people noticed. And so that they reached out to de Blasio's office and said, well, what's going on? And they had to say, oh, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, of course we're running for president and act like this was the plan all along. It was so badly bungled. And that, that like, a high school kid, he works for the school paper, uh-huh. yeah. uh, found this out. So, uh, you know, maybe next for him he's going to be a CNN contributor. Who knows, right? But he found he found this. And so the de Blasio campaign had to sort of admit, yeah, oops. Uh, that's the start of his career, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> his journalistic career. Yeah. Uh, I mean, seriously, I, I, I like Bill de Palacio. When he was running for uh, mayor of New York, you may remember he was a frequent guest on, uh, on our show. Um, I think he's done a good job as mayor of New York. He's certainly uh, a great progressive. Um, I, I just, and he's, well, maybe put the, he's mayor of a bigger city than Pete Buttigieg is. Fair. Right? Sir. So, yeah, totally. So he's got that going He's not on. as well liked as Mayor Pete <laughs> in his hometown, but that's a different story. Uh, uh, without taking, saying anything negative about him, I just don't see the lane to use that overused word, or I don't see the track, or I don't see the opening for a Bill de Blasio at this point when there are already 23 other choices. And again, have you noticed that all the late entries into the Democratic primary have been white men? Isn't that something? Yeah. I mean, like the last six or eight, right? Yeah, literally. Right. have all been white. No more women jumping in at all, right? So uh, I, 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 I There's think, something to be said about women leading the way, but I'm not going to make that. Well, I mean, you know, um, they say, jump, come on in, the water's fine. Yeah. I think it's time to say the pool is full. I mean, uh, and yeah, we're done, right? We're done. No. Well, we could, no. Uh, Stacey Abrams is still out there. Fair. Yeah, she's still okay. out there. All right. Now, on the political front, one other bit of good news, which I, I, I think is exciting. We've talked about the national popular vote before. Okay. Well, uh, as of last count, right, uh, there were some. I got the list here, so I'll tell you exactly. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. 14 states in the District of Columbia that have agreed to the national popular vote. That adds up to 189 electoral votes. Now, you know how this works. If enough states endorse this plan, they add up to 270 electoral votes. Meaning, if enough states say that we will give all of our electoral votes to whatever candidate wins the national popular vote, then that person will be, should be, and will be the president of the United States. It's one way to get rid of the Electoral College without having to change the Constitution. In effect, it is a very effective, very classic end run of the Constitution, going around the Constitution, to get rid of the Electoral College. Okay. All right. So we had 14, as of yesterday, 14 states in the District of Columbia. And then yesterday, the Maine Senate voted to endorse the national popular vote. Now, Maine only has four electoral votes, but uh, now the House, the Maine uh, House has to pass it and the governor has to sign it. Uh, the governor has said that she would. So that would make Maine could happen very quickly here, maybe before the end of the week. Uh, 189 plus four, 193 out of 270 which um, with several more states considering it this year. And I think once they get over that 200 uh, level, that more and more states are going to come on board. So we could see the end of the Electoral College maybe, maybe even before 2020. So we would not, again, have a president like we had this year and like we had in 2000. And, or in 2000, we would not again see a president of the United States 
who lost the popular vote and yet became president of the United States. Lots going on. And meanwhile, more and more impeachment talk at the House. The man who has started that effort toward impeachment, the very first one to stand up and say we should begin impeachment hearings against the president of the United States, is Congressman Al Green from Texas. He joins us here in studio next to tell us what's gone on, all the latest news on that front. On this Thursday, May 16, give us a quick break and we'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. Here we are on a Thursday, March 6th, March, no, let's make it the month of May, May 16. It is the Bill Press Show. Great to see you today and thanks for coming along for the ride here as we uh, take a look at all the big headlines of the day, the big issues of the day here on the Bill Press Show. And we're so proud to welcome back to the studio uh, our good friend representing uh, the 9th Congressional District of the state of Texas, Congressman uh, Al Green, uh, known, among other things, for being the first one to introduce uh, impeachment uh, articles of impeachment against the President of the United States. Mr. Congressman, it's always good to see you. It's an honor to be with you. Oh, uh, it you. really is. You have been a champion for... Uh, people uh, since I have known of you, and uh, I salute you for your many years of service to people. Thank well, we you. thank you, and we're still going strong. And, and uh, in fact, we announced this morning we're going off and uh, taking the show to a whole new level with a new podcast, which we're launching the first week of June, where we're going to be taking a particular look at the right in the middle of the 2020 presidential contest. Before we move on, Congressman, let me. we just want to take a minute to check on some of the comments from our listeners and viewers over the last half hour, Peter. Yes, indeed. A lot of comments uh, on, let's start with 2020, where our our buddy Phil here in Washington, D.C. says, nobody in New York City wants de Blasio to run for president. He seems to be running for his own fortune and vaingloriousness. That says something. Uh, Annette brings up a good point when we're talking about polls and a lot of the polling. She asks, uh, should we be talking more about polls? Does anybody under the age of 70 answer the phone if they don't recognize <laughs> the number? That's a very good point because a lot of these polls That's a say, real weakness like, with these polls. Exactly. No, oh, it's, yeah. they're very, very unpredictable. I, uh, and by the way, if you look at your phone, you know, where, where uh, what, do they, what do they call that, calling, you know, Caller ID. Caller ID, yeah. right? Yeah. And it says survey? You sure as hell don't answer, yeah, right? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We also talked about the uh, abortion uh, law in Alabama. KG says the men and women of Alabama have to step up on their own and elect the right people. We can't do it for them. This will be more true uh, if Roe versus Wade goes to the states. Uh, if you have a comment on any topic at any time, find us on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. You know, and on that point, Congressman, it was 25 white men I heard in, the, in the Alabama State Senate who passed this bill, which is, let's face it, is going to impact especially poor women, African-American women, people of color, right? Yes, just, I, I heard this on the news, and I was quite disappointed. Uh, there was one senator who did... Uh, emotionally express his outrage and uh, thought that he uh, raised some important points. They don't make exceptions for rape or incest. No. Uh, It just seems to be something that uh, they want to get before the court. This is done purely to get it before the court so that they can Mm -hmm. overturn Roe, uh, which uh, is settled law and which would probably create quite a bit of consternation among voting population, especially women. 
it, it's so extreme. Pardon me, so extreme that even uh, the Reverend Pat Robertson, <laughs> no, uh, no crazy liberal he right, uh, said this goes to here, here's Pat Robertson yesterday. I think Alabama has gone too far. They've passed a law that would give a 99-year prison sentence to people who could commit abortion. There's no exception for rape or incest. Uh, it's an extreme law, and they want to challenge Roe versus Wade. But my humble view is that this is not the case we want to bring to the Supreme Court because I think this one will lose. Yeah, when when Pat Robertson says you've gone too far, I, I think that he may be right. But um, given the makeup of the court, uh, I'm I'm a little bit worried about that. Uh, I think that um, with Kavanaugh. Uh, who was, uh, mm-hmm. uh, to say the very least, ambivalent in terms of how he expressed himself, uh, I think that um, we should be concerned, and I think we have to take every opportunity to make it known that this is unacceptable. Uh, for 25 men, and then all of them to be of one hue, I think that that speaks volumes about the mindset that this uh, Senate has when you will allow this kind of thing to occur. This is a very, very sensitive issue, uh, Mr. Press. Uh, this is the kind of thing that people have to grapple with, and it tears at their souls. Uh, we assume, too many of us, and not I'm not including myself, but uh, too many people assume that uh, this is just done arbitrarily and capriciously all the time, yeah, that, yeah. that women don't they, don't, they don't torture themselves and families don't go through a crisis when this occurs. Uh, this is the kind of thing that family members have to resolve and as best as they can, they have to come to terms with. Uh, so I'm going to leave this in the hands of people who have to grapple with these issues and the people that they trust to confer with, not the government. Uh, there are some things that the government ought not do, and extending its hand into the womb is one of those things. Uh, well said, Congressman. Uh, now, I want to ask you about a story the Washington Post uh, that reports this morning uh, that yesterday there was a caucus of House Democrats and Speaker Pelosi, this is reported by the Washington Post, I wasn't there, that the Speaker Pelosi uh, encouraged the members to stick to their policy agenda in 2020 and not to go down the road of starting impeachment hearings. Uh, she said that before, but the Post says that she made this pitch again yesterday in the Democratic Caucus. And according to the Washington Post, not one single Democrat stood up to challenge her. Uh, can you confirm that? And why didn't you or anybody else stand up? Well, thank you. I greatly appreciate the opportunity to, to respond. Um, yesterday was a day that I gave a floor speech. Uh, and so I was not there at the time this was said, if mm-hmm. it was said, because yeah. I can't okay. validate it. Okay. Uh, anything that I would say would be hearsay. Got it. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. I, I can't validate Fair point. Yeah. But, but I may say, if I may say this, please, uh, my views are fairly well known. So <laughs> Right. I don't think it's a secret. <laughs> I think most people uh, who have been engaged in the process are very much aware that I'm antithetical to what this president has done, and I believe impeachment is a remedy. Do you believe that the president has committed impeachable offenses? Oh, absolutely. Which ones? Or uh, absolutely. That, how would you well, uh, let me uh, give identify you, them? Uh, quickly, I'll give you a broad summary. Uh, the Mueller report, I think, uh, speaks volumes about obstruction. If you recall, I indicated when he fired... Mr. Comey, that uh, the president just can't fire a person because he doesn't want to be investigated. Uh, that, that's beyond the pale. And I thought at that time we should uh, look at impeachment 
uh, because once you see the president cross the line and you don't step up and challenge him, he sees that there are no guardrails. And then he has continued, and Mr. Mueller has given us some 10 to 12 different reasons. But Mr. Cohen, um, uh, 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 the, the president's special lawyer, personal lawyer, um, he um, uh, said that um, the president uh, engaged in a process with him that, uh, quite frankly, has caused him to go to jail. Yeah, and, he's uh, in jail now. <laughs> yes, uh, and if the president is an unindicted co-conspirator of a sort, I think that merits some uh, review as well. And uh, I would say this, uh, bigotry in policy. Uh, when you say that there are S-hole countries in Africa and then you roll out your immigration policy as it relates to Africa, uh, when you say that there are some very fine people among the bigots and racists in Charlottesville where a woman lost her life, uh, these are the kinds of things that say to me that you're unfit to be president. As a matter of fact, Mr. Press, uh, this president is in office probably for one reason more than any other. He is a beneficial bigot. There are people who are benefiting from his bigotry. Good example, uh, a good many members of the religious community. Mm. Um, they, they have just, in a sense, sold their souls to this president. Things that they would not tolerate in any other person on the planet, they tolerate because he is a beneficial bigot. Uh, they understand that he's a bigot, but he's their bigot. And as long as he's their bigot and he's doing uh, some of their bidding, uh, they seem to find favor with this. I do not. I think that the president has brought us to the precipice of a constitutional crisis. Now, there are people who would differ, but let's remember this. There is no hard and fast definition of what a constitutional crisis is. So if you hear someone say, here's what it is, that's his or her opinion. Mm -hmm. Everybody can have an opinion on it. Here's my opinion. If we conclude that a constitutional crisis will only occur when you get to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court can't resolve an issue, as is the case between the House now uh, and the executive, the president, and everyone is expecting this to go to the Supreme Court and eventually with the subpoenas, the Supreme Court will rule. And then if the president won't abide by the ruling, if that is a constitutional crisis for you, then I would differ with you. That's a constitutional collapse. Hmm. You see, mm -hmm. I make a distinction between a collapse and the crisis. The crisis is the thing that we're in now. If we get to a point where the president just absolutely refuses to honor a court order, then that's a collapse. And I think that we shouldn't allow ourselves to get to this point. The solution is impeachment. It is perspicuously clear. The Constitution speaks to it. And we ought to go down that road because if we do, Mr. Press, we don't have to worry about Supreme Court ruling. John Roberts will rule because he presides over the trial. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. trial will take place in public view. Every ruling that he makes will be seen by the public. And then we will have the opportunity to not only see the rulings made, but also to see them implemented and to see how the president responds. Now, there are two arguments that the speaker and others make uh, against moving forward with articles of impeachment. One is that uh, Democrats promised we, we get control of the House and we've, we've got a public policy agenda to, let's say, save Obamacare, do something about prescription drugs, do something about climate change, about jobs, about minimum wage. And if you start impeachment hearings, it's going to detract from or make it maybe make it impossible to proceed with the policy agenda. What's your response? Well, I don't think that's the case. Uh, 
you will hear Democrats speaking, they're saying that we're adhering to the policy agenda and that we can walk and chew gum at the same time as a phrase that's commonly utilized. I, I concur with that phraseology. But I would also say this. There are some things, Mr. Press, that— You, you could call me Bill. <laughs> I, I, I respect I, you greatly, and I, I appreciate the, the opportunity to just be in your company. There, there are some things, sir, that um, are bigger than the people themselves who have the duty and responsibility to negotiate them. Uh, when you have a president who is absolutely defying— all of the constitutional norms as they relate to the Congress. Send out a letter saying that, just forget about it. Uh, We're not going to cooperate with you. Uh, That's the essence of it. Uh, You have a serious problem. And here is the problem. The problem is we now have a crisis as it relates to the balance of power, the checks and balances that we expect to maintain that balance of power, literally, the, the well, system itself now is mm-hmm. at risk. And if Congress does <laughs> not impeach, if Congress does not impeach a president who is absolutely defiant, Nixon was impeached for failure to honor subpoenas, but a, and a defiant, and th- by the way, this is many, many times worse, but a president who's so defiant, if we do not, what we will do is say there are no guardrails. There, there, is, there are no boundaries for this president. And given his behavior thus far, uh, only um, the mind of uh, a a great uh, writer such as Dante can imagine the destruction that he could cause. Mm -hmm. Uh, I cannot imagine what he can do. So we have no choice now but to impeach. And we've had this choice for some time. And I say no choice. We still have a choice. But I think impeachment is a solution. Oh, so another argument is, against your point of view, is, okay, these are serious issues uh, that— we have um, now with uh, Congressman Maxine Waters at uh, f- f- banks and financial institutions. Deutsche or whatever Bank. It is. Yeah. Um, with Adam Schiff, with intelligence, uh, Jerry Nadler, with, uh, with judiciary. Let's let these committees do their work first and see if they lead us into impeachment here, rather than that impeachment would be the cart before the horse. Not at all. Um, let's let's. Right, look and at I hope this. you appreciate. It. I'm, no, no, no. These I, arguments I, that I've heard, and I, I want to get your response. I want yeah. your. I want the toughest questions you have. Okay, <laughs> so please do not back yeah. off one one scintilla. Let Let me make this comment first. If we don't impeach, here's what the president will say: The Mueller report vindicated me. There was no collusion, and not only was there no collusion, uh, there was no obstruction. Because were there obstruction, the Congress of the United States, dominated by uh, Democrats would have impeached me. They did not impeach me. Therefore, the Congress itself has vindicated me by their inaction. Uh, that is not something I would want said of the Congress of the United States of America, given the Mueller report. For those who've reviewed it, it's it's absolutely shocking. For those who have not, you should so that you can be properly shocked. Uh, now, mm-hmm. to, uh, to deal with uh, what you've just said, um, <clears throat> Mr. Press, um, we have a constitutional responsibility to put the moral imperative to maintain the uh, co-equal branches of the government, the House being one of them, a part of it, the legislative branch. We have a moral imperative that trumps political expediency, no pun intended. Um, uh, Political expediency is 
not something that we can allow to stand between us and the moral imperative to protect the House of Representatives, part of the legislative branch, as a co-equal branch of government. We will become a toothless paper tiger if we don't take action, given that we all say now, um, most of the members of the House that I've heard talk about this, that the president has committed impeachable offenses. How can we say that he's committed impeachable offenses and then say uh, impeachment may not be the thing to do? Uh, I just don't see how we can do it. At least one person will not allow this to happen, and that will be me. Mr. Press, I have said before, and I'll say again, uh, if the House, by and through various committees, won't take the appropriate action, the Constitution and the rules allow each member to bring impeachment to a vote. Uh, I have done it twice before, and I have no reservations about doing it again because it's the country that's at risk, but it's the soul of the House that is going to be lost. Uh, and the final argument that I hear is that that if, if it were the House to begin impeachment hearings, it's exactly what Donald Trump wants. Because he would then say, look, I'm a victim of these yes. Democrats. They're just of picking on me. Of course he would. And uh, now first it was Mueller, and now it's you know N- Nancy Pelosi and the rest. And, uh, and his base will rally behind him, and that it could help him politically and hurt Democrats politically. Is there a Are you single, worried about that? Is there a single person who uh, views politics in a serious way, who doesn't believe that his base will rally around him regardless. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he has to do very much to have a base rally around him. He has already indicated he I think that's a given. Yeah, so yeah. that's going to happen. That's going to happen, notwithstanding anything else. Uh, but here is the, the point uh, with reference to that. The president doesn't want to be impeached. Most would-be <laughs> authoritarians, uh, would-be dictators, if most of these people with this mentality want to be loved. This is why when you go into countries where there are dictators, they have their pictures up and people have to march and dance and sing and praise. And the best example of how this president um, is a would-be, not there yet, but he's a would-be authoritarian, uh, is the way the people in his cabinet have to literally praise him at the genesis of a cabinet meeting. He goes around the room, thank God for, for uh, General Mattis, who, yeah, who, right. who said, you know, the troops are doing great, Mr. President, and we're going to be ready. Uh, not those exact words. But others just fell in line. It's amazing to me how people have just lost and surrendered their integrity to this man simply because he's a beneficial bigot. He's beneficial. He benefits them. Uh, there are people in this country... Mr. Press, who have staked their reputations on fighting bigotry. There are organizations in this country who have at the very core of their constitutions to the the challenge of taking on bigots wherever they are. Uh, And they do it Mm -hmm. religiously and righteously, except when it comes to the president. They have sold themselves out because they will not take on this president. Uh, We have seen him in the international arena, how his bigotry how he's been able to weaponize it to the extent that he can show people how they can benefit from it. And that makes him a person who is truly persona non grata. We have a duty, a responsibility, and an obligation in this House to impeach this president, 
we don't have to have the hearings. I'm, I'm not opposed to them doing yeah, it, right. but I don't want us to get into the paralysis of analysis, as Dr. King put it. Uh, we don't want to just talk about this until we, at some point we'll say, oh, it's too late now. Let's just wait until the election and defeat him as opposed to impeach him. So you're telling us today that you are still determined, prepared, ready to, in, to call for a vote on impeachment at any time. I won't say at any time. I think okay. that there's an asset test for when it should take place that I've not revealed to anyone. Uh-huh. But I do think that, yes, uh, I, as uh, as God is my witness, uh, I I will do it if no one else does, if the proper committees don't do it. Absolutely. We have to and go on record. The people who look through the vista of time have got to know where each of us stood at this time of crisis in the history of our country. And if people... Uh, out around the country uh, who are joining us today, uh, either right now live, television, radio, later on in the podcast, want to help, right, and kind of help you put some pressure on some people, how do they do so? What do you, uh, well, what do you want them to do? What do you, well, uh, what would you glad ask you, people glad to Glad do? you mentioned the people because about 45% now say that they'd mm-hmm. like to see impeachment. And, mm-hmm. uh, of course, overwhelming majority of uh, Democrats would like to see impeachment. Here's what I say to people. I have told members, and I say it now, vote your conscience. I'm, this is a, a matter of conscience for me. So I say vote your conscience. And I tell the people around the country, uh, you know what activism is. You do what you think is uh, appropriate for the circumstances. I don't tell people how to go about expressing themselves, but I do think that every person has a right to weigh in on this question. And make their voices known, right? I, however they choose to. Right, okay. Um, I want to ask you about something else while you're here. Yes, sir. Uh, and that is uh, about a big Senate race in Texas coming up. Yes. Next year, right? Yes. John Cornyn is up. Yes. Right? Um, do we have a chance of getting that seat back? Um, do you think that Julian Castro should be running for that seat instead of running for president? And why aren't you running? Well, you're very kind to think as highly of me as you do. If well, you, if, you, if, you, if you, you have as high a profile well, as anybody else you, in Texas. You, you're, you're the first person to, to say such a thing to me. I'm honored that you would. Uh, I'm trying as best as I can to f- fulfill my constitutional responsibilities in the House of Representatives. Now, the follow-up question is, is that a no? Uh, that is a no. Okay, so now let's You're talk. You're not going to run. I'm not okay. running for Senate. Uh, I'm running for the House of Representatives. Uh, I have been there, and I enjoy the work that I do. I think it's a good thing for me to do. But in terms of other people, I, I'm not the person who's going to select who the challenger ought to be. There are persons who have indicated they are interested in this. Um, Mr. Castro's brother has indicated that he's interested mm-hmm. in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Chris Bell, former Congressman Chris Bell, has indicated in the Houston Chronicle just yesterday, I believe, that he is interested in running. So we have plenty of candidates, a plethora of persons who may want to run. Uh, I will be supporting the Democrat. Uh, I think that uh, uh, the Democratic Party will have a good uh, opportunity in Texas, a great opportunity to turn Texas blue. I, I really believe that there are enough people in Texas now who've seen enough of this president who will be driven to the polls, notwithstanding the fact that his people are going to show up, but they'll be driven to the polls uh, such that uh, we can turn Texas blue. I think this is a great opportunity, and my suspicion is that we will have a uh, Democratic senator from the state of Texas. So Cornyn, you believe, is vulnerable Right. And beatable. Well, here's what I believe. I believe that the president is going to bring out a wave of persons who are going Mm. to vote 
for Democrats. Mm. Now, Texas has done something that's uh, a little under the radar that you may not be aware of. Uh, and prior to this election coming up in Texas, we could vote by pressing the Democratic button yeah. and you would vote for all Democrats. They've eliminated party voting. You now will have to go down the line and vote for yeah. each person. On a typical ballot in Harris County, that can be as many as 80 to 100 people. Oh, wow. Yeah. To so vote that could for impact it as yes, well. Sir. Yeah, yes, indeed. sir. Congressman, it's always good to see you. Well, Thank it's an you. honor. Thank you, you. Are, you, you. You just never stop. You never slow down. You're really right well, out I'm, the front. Well, I'm, I'm headed to issues. the floor of the House this morning to give another message on impeachment. All right. Okay. Well, so, thanks for stopping here first. It's always good to see you. Congressman Al Green from Texas. And when we come back, Justin Singh covers the White House for Bloomberg. He'll be joining us as well. Top of the hour. Quick break, and we'll be right back. Congressman, thank you again. This thank you. is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Okay, if you didn't think we have enough Democratic candidates running for president, hey, this is your day. Number 23 jumps in today. Mayor Bill de Blasio from New York, uh, 10 minutes from now, making it official on uh, Good Morning America, and then off to Iowa, and then to South Carolina. So uh, <laughs> move over, Tulsi Gabbard. There's a uh, new man in town here, Bill de Blasio today, uh, number 23. Hello, everybody. It is the Bill Press Show. Here we go. On a big Thursday, May 16, so good to have you with us today. As we reach out to you from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., with all the news of the day, what's happening here in Washington, around the country, and around the globe, we've got it covered uh, we'll tell you what's going on and look forward to hearing from you as to what it all means to you. Uh, send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, and uh, to help us through the news of the day this next half hour, uh, our good friend from Bloomberg covers the White House for Bloomberg, uh, Justin Sink. Justin, it's good to see you. Hey, great to see you. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming in. Uh, and uh, we have... Um, are, are we at war yet with Iran? I mean, uh, I, I don't think yet. <laughs> it could be any minute now, but uh, yeah, I, th- I think right now we're we're still not at war with Iran. Well, you know, got kind of scary yesterday, and uh, interesting. I can't wait to talk to you about whether or not um, Donald Trump is going to follow the lead of uh, uh, John Bolton. There are mixed uh, mixed reports about that, but we've got lots and lots to talk about. Plus, a big announcement on our part, all coming up. But first. No. 
Oh, there, I'm there, I'm there. Oh, oh, <laughs> sorry. Just that buttons are somewhere there, right? Can't find I it. I forgot how to do this. Uh, just a couple of other stories making news. This is a story that would have gotten more attention, but it was barely a blip on the radar yesterday. Uh-oh. Uh, yesterday, Donald Trump issued a pardon, a full oh, pardon yes. for Conrad Black. You remember the name Conrad Black, a media mogul? He was convicted of obstruction of justice and fraud in 2007. He was charged with stealing millions of dollars from his investors. He was sentenced to a couple years, or six and a half years in prison on multiple fraud charges. But yesterday, Donald Trump said, full part, full part. Yeah, you're right. Didn't get any coverage at all. I didn't see much. It's really interesting, too, because Conrad Black is somebody who's spent a lot of time in the last couple months, last couple years, really praising Donald Trump. They're old friends from Palm Beach. And so it's another instance of the president Mm -hmm. sort of giving uh, a political ally and a friend on his pardon. Total rat, this guy, Conrad (laughs) Black. I mean, a bad dude, but he gets his pardon. So there you go. Uh, Bill, have you ever eaten at a Steak and Shake? You're familiar with Steak and Shake? Yeah. All right. Uh, well, so their big thing is they serve burgers and shakes, but they're having some real financial problems. Is that Danny Myers thing? No, that's uh, Shake Shack. A Shake Shack, okay. All Steak right, and good. Shake is different. It's been around for a lot longer, but they do burgers and they do shakes. Uh, but they're, they're having some financial problems. So yesterday, their CEO said he has a great idea of how they're going to make a little money, do a little bit better. They are going to do away with putting cherries on top of their milkshakes. Oh, that's going to save a lot of money. Well, I, that's what that was my reaction. But he goes on to say, you know how much they can save by doing this? One million dollars. They spend a million dollars on and cherries? cherries on the milkshakes at Shake Shack. Does that blow your mind? It blows my mind. Yeah. Uh, I, I it's can't, been a long time since I've been to a steak. Uh, uh, yeah, I can't believe they still put cherries on a milkshake, but. Some places will ask, do you want us to put a cherry in the milkshake? But, like, they, they actually, they just put them on there, and they said they're going to stop doing it because it could save them a million dollars. Now, is that going to be enough? Who knows? Because they had an operating loss of nearly $19 million in the first quarter. Oh, wow. All right. So. That cuts it down to 18. Yeah. <laughs> what else can they cut back on? As long as they don't do away with those dark cherries in an old-fashioned. Oh, they couldn't possibly. They couldn't do possibly that. do that. No. But you could go to better places than Steak and Shake <laughs> to get one of those. To get an old fashioned, I wouldn't want one at Steak and Shake. <laughs> this is the Bill Press Show. Hello, America. It is Thursday, May 16, and this is the Bill Press Show. Thanks for joining us today with lots to talk about, as always. Uh, the news of the day here in Washington, around the country, and around the globe. That's our business. We'll bring it to you. Your job to tell us what you think about it all by going on Twitter, sending us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. Uh, we are here in our studio on Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C., and joined by uh, Justin Bloomberg. For, uh, just, well, <laughs> Justin Bloomberg, don't you wish? Don't yeah. you <laughs> wish? Oh, man, Daddy, thank yeah. you. <laughs> Justin Sink from Bloomberg, doesn't own the company yet, <laughs> uh, to talk about it uh, covers the White House for, uh, for Bloomberg. And we'll jump into the news of the day. But um, first, 
One big announcement, a little bit of breaking news about uh, ourselves, in case you weren't with us at the top of the uh, uh, last hour, just bringing you up to date, uh, that in a couple of weeks, we're very exciting news. We're going to be taking uh, the Bill Press Show to a whole new level, a whole new platform, a whole new exciting way of engaging with you uh, in the 2020 presidential election, particularly uh, through the uh, Democratic primary. Uh, and as of the first week of June, we'll be launching uh, a new podcast, a series of podcasts focusing, focusing on the political situation, uh, the 2020 election and the uh, Democratic primary, particularly uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, my interviews, at least a couple of ways, maybe more, but one for sure, my interviews with some of the um, principal characters, um, people in the news, either running for office or running the campaigns or in any way influenced in that process. And also a, a very special podcast um, that I can't tell you about yet, but we'll be making an announcement on that particular one uh, very, very quickly, which uh, I know you'll, you'll all be excited to hear about too. So uh, what we need from you in the meet, what's very important is for this new format and this new look and this new way of approaching things is that all of you who have been with us all these years uh, to carry with us and continue with us both um, on the podcast and on Twitter. So to make that happen, we really need you to, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the podcast. Just go to BillPressShow.com, sign up, be part of our podcast, and also follow us on Twitter. Go to Twitter, uh, you know, at BP Show, and make sure uh, you follow us. And that way you'll know everything that's going on. You'll be informed of when we make the big switch how and when and where to uh, to find us in this uh, in, in the new format. Uh, that does mean that uh, our daily show, the two hours every day to start the day that we've been doing for 14 years <laughs> with a lot of fun and a lot of great guests, um, will be will come to an end. Uh, that part of the Bill Press show will come to an end uh, in two weeks on May 31st. Friday, May 31st is the last broadcast. But the very next week, we'll be launching uh, our podcast. So may, may, big point is we are not going away. I'm not going away. We're just going to be joining you uh, again in a whole new format. Frankly, I think this is the most exciting Democratic primary that I've ever seen, and I want to be right in the middle of it, and we think this is the best way to do it through this new series of podcasts. Uh, again, won't be going away. I'll be as close to you as your smartphone, right? It's going to be like Bill Press On Demand uh, on your smartphone, but uh, be sure you sign up on the podcast and be sure to follow us on Twitter so you'll know everything that is uh, going on. Uh, very exciting, and um, Justin, is worth pointing out that 14 years and Peter Ogburn was there on day one. It's true. Yes. <laughs> That's true. I, we, I have to say that when Peter told me that you had a big announcement having to do with the, the election, I assumed that you were going to Oh. Jump in. I mean, <laughs> there weren't enough white guys in this race. Yeah, yeah. You could be number 24. It's so right, I'm excited that you're, you know, you've decided uh, to keep at this. But I, That I, I'm smarter yeah. than that, huh? Right. Uh, but I would like to say, I mean, you know, Peter and everybody who works here has always been great to us uh, guests who come in. And, and of course, we want to thank you throughout this sort of daily run. I know I personally have been in here for at least half of that every every <laughs> yeah. so often and yeah um, absolutely in and, from for different jobs right? yeah well and and that's what I was gonna say is one uh, really awesome thing and thing that we'll miss about the show is that you invite in you know 
the kids who are just starting out in D.C. and who are covering obscure policy beats and sort of weird things that are happening in the city. And, <laughs> and this is one of the first chances people get to uh, get on the radio, talk to a, a big audience and, and really sort of flesh out their stories and ideas and promote them. And so I, while I'm excited for you guys, I, I think that'll be something that we really miss and something that I've been really appreciative of. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, and by the way, we're proud of that. Yeah, you know? I, no, I, I'm that, beaming to hear you say that. Yeah. That is one of the things that I've been uh, most proud of over the years to do that. And I give Peter a lot of credit for that because, you know, he discovers these people, brings them in. And uh, we we laugh often at people <laughs> that we see um who started it out here, if you will. I mean, yeah. this morning we were watching Jess McIntosh on CNN. Uh, she started her first media appearances, I think, were right here on the Bill Press Show when she was at uh, Emily's List. Yeah. Um, Dylan Byers. He's who, on TV now. He's D- like a TV D- personality. He's on TV Clint. all the time. Sabrina Singh, or Sabrina Siddiqui, right? Yeah. Who's still one of ours, yeah. right? But now she's a contributor to CNN. So we we see these people that we we feel that we've launched, right? Yeah. You know, as media stars. There are people who are on TV every day. That Clinton Yates is one of them. Clinton like Yates. they're on TV yeah. every mm-hmm. single day. Uh, who will tell you if you ask them? Their very first media hit was right here. On in Bill fact, Price. Dylan Byers was funny because Dylan, uh, <laughs> his first appearance, he walked in. Princeton about ten minutes late or something. <laughs> sounds right. And we called him. We were like, "Where are like you?" He goes, I'm getting my coffee. Yeah, yeah. And, and he was sort of saying, "Oh, I didn't realize like radio started on time." <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. So he learned a big lesson. Yeah. <laughs> it worked out well for him. Yeah. <laughs> I think he, he's in California now. That might be more more his speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> So at any rate, that's the big news, and uh, and you're all part of it. And thank you, thank you, thank you for being with us uh, every step of the way in this first iteration, and we want you every step of the way in the next iteration of the Bill Press Show and Bill Press and Friends as well. So, Justin, what the hell's going on? Where do we start? Let's start with Iran. I asked you about that top of the hour. So we read yesterday that John Bolton has put this plan in front of the president to send 120,000 troops to the Middle East just to be poised in case we Iran does anything, you know, that we have to respond to. The Washington Post says today that Donald Trump doesn't like this plan. It doesn't like the jo- fact that John Bolton is making so much noise about it. What do we read into this? Well, I mean, I think that we are starting to see both in Iran and a couple weeks ago in Venezuela the real split between Donald Trump and, and the person who he hired to be his national security mm-hmm. advisor. John Bolton is, uh, I think— Sort of famously belligerent, maybe, and 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 enjoys uh, flexing American strength and and muscle around the world. I, I think we all remember his role in um, the buildup to the Iraq War, and I think yeah. that is his sort of default setting. And he has been hired by a president who uh, has not been shy about the fact that he's dovish, that that he doesn't see uh, a role for. The U.S. and foreign entanglements, uh, and I think as you know, this relationship goes on and on. Those ideas are coming into conflict. So, uh, the president gave Bolton a long leash in Venezuela to sort of posture and uh, hint that the U.S. might be interested in military intervention. When it came down to it, uh, the sort of coup or attempt to to unseat Maduro was unsuccessful, and it seemed like that caused some frustration within the White House because uh, Bolton had been advocating a, a stronger uh, posture there and one that makes mm-hmm. 
the right. U.S. look as if they kind of missed the boat there. Uh, the same thing seems to be happening in Iran, which is that that John Bolton is looking to pressure Iran, right, to both cease hostile activities in the Middle East and uh, come and renegotiate uh, some newer, newer what the Trump administration would say, better version of the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, his sort of default way of, of doing that, I think, is by ratcheting up the military pressure. He's presented the president with a series of plans. And when you ask President Trump about it, I was out on the South Lawn when he got asked Mm -hmm. a couple days ago, and he said, you know, we're not thinking about this. We're not thinking about sending the military in. And I think especially ahead of an election where that's going to be a referendum on a lot of his campaign promises, I don't think Donald Trump has shown any indication that he's interested in getting into sort of long-term military conflict. No, it doesn't seem, uh, from what we've seen, very Trump-like. It's it's really Bolton-like. But it does have, uh, to me, a lot of echoes of the build-up to the Iraq war, which is, you know, we're we're told there's this threat, there's this threat, there's this threat, and we have no choice, you know, but we got to act. Or go back to the Gulf of Tonkin, you know, with with LBJ. And and I, I was debating this yesterday on NPR, too. I mean, what action of that Iran took did Iran take that would trigger a response of sending the Sixth Fleet or whatever it is, you know, off Iran or... Yeah, I mean, you know, you can obviously point to, um, you know, actions that they've taken and proxies that they've used to sow yeah, chaos throughout, long, the, throughout the Middle East. Time. And obviously yeah. that's been going on for a long time. Uh, I guess to some extent, uh, depending on where you come down on the sort of war powers thing, it it could be the president's prerogative to say, "Okay, I've had enough of this. It's time to intervene militarily. Uh, It's Congress obviously has a role there as well. And we know that that (laughs) a role they've abdicated. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And there is an effort, although one that I would be surprised if it's successful to sort of preempt that up on Capitol Hill by saying that the president has to come to get authorization for for yeah. military action. But I, I, I do think that the biggest deterrent for this happening is unlike uh, George W. Bush ahead of the Iraq war, um, unlike past military conflicts that we've gotten into, Donald Trump really ran on not yes. these yeah. doing these types of interventions. And there is a significant chunk of his base that, that came to him because they saw him as a break on this issue from sort of status quo within politicians of both sides. If Joe Biden is the nominee, it's going to be a key area where he can, where Donald Trump can try to distinguish himself, try to pick off um, people who don't sort of classically align with one of the two parties. And and so I think the president, based on his tweet, based on his comments that he's made on the South Lawn, is sort of acutely aware of uh, the risks that that all this run. Okay. Uh, So Justin Sink is with us from Bloomberg at Bloomberg.com, correct? If um, if he's not totally on board with the Iran policy, the president is certainly on board and driving the tariff train. Right? I mean, that's his baby for sure. And you know, despite I think maybe some of his economic advisors thinks that this is really a net positive for the United States and and the U.S. economy and U.S. consumers, he sees um, you know millions of dollars coming in from these tariffs that that have been imposed on Chinese goods. That he ratcheted them up. Uh, earlier this week, the, that'll go into effect uh, at the end of the month. Um, and 
he sees this as a way to, to gain leverage in these talks. Now, the, the ultimate question remains, um, it, you know, does he want a deal? Does he want to broker this deal? Does he think he can get it done by the time that he meets Xi Jinping uh, at the G20? Or uh, is he ultimately happy with this tariff policy? I, I think what a big question is going to be, because this has led to a sort of retaliation from China's side, is can he fix this for farmers in the U.S. who have been disproportionately hurt by those retaliatory tariffs, who are mm-hmm. going to have a hard time selling their products, especially soy products, into uh, into Asia. And if you know the heartland of America starts really hurting because they, they can't sell their stuff and because the U.S. subsidies aren't sort of balancing the scales, that is going to create a big political problem for the president. Well, on that point, uh, CNN, Kate Baldwin yesterday spoke to uh, a farmer from Ohio. Um, his name is Chris Gibbs. And Peter, that, that second point where he, uh, he he points out that, and here's a farmer, he said, he openly told her, uh, Kate, yesterday that he was on the Trump train and he got off the Trump train, uh, but on this and, and the first time the subsidies were offered to farmers, he took them. But, you know, that's, that's not really the answer. But he gets to the point of who pays for the tariffs. Chris Gibbs. Up until yesterday, the president has been very clear that all of these tariff dollars that he wants to transfer to farmers have been coming from China and from Mexico and Canada and so forth, but primarily from China. That's just not true. It's just not true. Those monies, those tariff dollars come directly from American importers, from American companies that hire American workers, that pay American taxes. And when those dollars, when, when you buy goods from China to send out to U.S. consumers, those companies pay that and then they turn around and push that out to consumers to pay. So the president might push out more money to farmers, but let's be clear of where it's coming from, and let's let the taxpayer know that it's not coming from China. Yeah, so sort of sticking it to the farmers on one hand with the tariffs, and then trying to make up for it by taking the money American companies are paying for the tariffs and giving some of it back to farmers, right? Yeah, uh, and this uh, is going to be a real, and you've seen a number of sort of fact checks and and Larry Kudlow over the weekend got kind of pressed yeah. on this yeah. even <laughs> during an appearance I think on uh, Fox News and and so this is this is becoming a, a potential political liability now the sort of wind at the president's sails and the, the reason that I think this hasn't been a bigger issue is that the economy is doing well overall the stock market uh, despite some shakiness in the last couple yeah. uh, couple of days has not responded in a way that that is really punishing to the president. And no, so, it fell 617 points of day China retaliated, and then it came back up. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, right now, I'm not sure that the consumers, and I'm not sure that voters specifically, are linking the president's trade r- wars with rising costs, especially on consumer electronics, makeup, that kind of stuff. But the longer that this goes on, the more likely that it's going to have you know, noticeable impacts, not just on prices of goods, but on uh, the sort of economy and stock market as a whole. And so that, you know, that is the sort of game of chicken that the president's playing. He would argue and and his allies would argue that, you know, if this results in a trade deal with China that that evens out some of the competitive balances that, that have been broken for decades, that it's going to be worth the short-term pain, especially because that short-term pain 
pain came as the economy was doing well overall. Right. But clearly, so far as we've seen, he's not about to back down. And in fact, he's even talking about maybe expanding the list of products. Yeah, on, on which uh, tariffs more were, than more than uh, doubling the current list, and yeah. uh, you know the real question, I think, <laughs> and the thing that we're all looking at is when are when's the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and and when's Robert Lighthizer, the USTR, going to go back to China, restart negotiations? That will be a sign that that things are really potentially coming back together. And then there's this um, G20 meeting with Xi Jinping. We know that when Trump gets right. into the room with a foreign leader, deals can <laughs> materialize quickly. And so I think that's going to be another sort of big signpost uh, that we're looking at. So uh, the, the, when the president has not been tweeting about the tariffs and assuring everybody that everything's good, this is good for the United we're in a good position, which did solve maybe to um, reassure the market a little bit. Uh, when he's not tweeting about tariffs, he's tweeting about the Democratic presidential candidates, right? <laughs> he really does seem obsessed with this race and has given almost all of them a nickname already, right? And oh, yeah, for sure. It was funny, uh, you know, two days ago maybe he was in he's down in Louisiana. <laughs> right. Supposed to be talking about uh, a new big energy yeah, plant yeah. that had opened up down there. And instead he, he goes on this five-minute riff about all the different Democratic candidates. Yeah, he talked so, about Peter Ju- P- P- Buddha Peter Judge. Judge. Uh, what, what he calls he calls what? Buddha Judge Judge or whatever. Yeah, Boot Edge Edge. Boot Edge Edge, yeah. Uh, and then Beto O'Rourke, you know, yeah. falling like a rock, whatever happened to him. Because Joe Biden, you yeah. know, uh, of what do you hear from your source at the White House? Is is there any one of them that they're concerned about? And and is this good for Donald Trump to spend so much time talking about the Democrats? Well, so uh, sort of universally on the Trump campaign and in the White House, the, the sort of party line is that they're not worried about any of these Democratic candidates. Okay, uh, I think their actions betray perhaps a different story. Uh, the fact that the president when Joe Biden got the endorsement of the firefighters union retweeted, you know, 30 or 60 times, whatever it was, people who said that they were firefighters who backed mm-hmm. him uh, demonstrated that that was an area that that the president was worried about. The fact that Joe Biden's having his kickoff rally this weekend in Philly and Donald Trump's going to Pennsylvania on Monday suggests to me that uh, this is something that that's front of mind for them. Um, I, there's a bit of a political risk for Trump, which is that I think most people assume that Joe Biden is one of the strongest candidates against Donald Trump. Right? Many Democrats would say, "Hey, we want to we want to go with a different candidate because they better sort of embody where we think the party is, or where the party is going, or or what they support uh, policy-wise." But I think what seems to be a, a bigger, more universal opinion is that Joe Biden one-on-one with Donald Trump. Joe Biden is sort of popular in the states that you need to be Donald Trump in. So there's a risk of, of Trump elevating Biden that he's going to get the candidate that, well, that yeah, poses think, one of the biggest risks I, to I'll him. bet you Biden smiles every time Donald Trump talks about him. Of course, because for it, Joe Biden, running against Donald Trump is a much more attractive uh, option than running against Democrats who can challenge him from the left on uh, you know policies that have Climate change, evolved. Iraq war, exactly. Or yeah, yeah. It, that have evolved significantly over a very long sort of tenure in Washington. So um, that's the sort of political risk that exists for the president. Now, the the benefit of doing this is that, <laughs> you know, 
President Trump's supporters sort of love him the most when he is um, uh, skirting around the sort of political norms, having fun, being funny. And, you know, while some of the things that he's saying are outrageous, some of them are also have a, a grain of truth to them. They're funny. And yeah, this yeah. is a way for him to engage with his supporters and people who came out uh, to see him and, and to to sort of start rallying um, his base that he need, you know needs to turn out in a big way for him to to win re-election he he beat Hillary Clinton in part because there was extremely low turnout it's unlikely that that's going to be true in this next uh, election and so he's got to start rallying his folks and so this is a, a way for him to do it uh, on the Twitter front which again is a sign people say we shouldn't pay that much attention to them but it certainly is a sign of what Donald Trump is thinking about, concerned about, um, spending his time on. Uh, there was nary a tweet yesterday on the Alabama vote uh, on the total ban on abortion signed into law last night by, by, by the governor. Um, now, Donald Trump has sided, at least in the, since he's been running for president, right, with the uh, anti-choice people. But is this an issue that he wants to be front and center on 2020? Is maybe, and maybe does his silence indicate that he'd rather just stay away from it? Well, I'm not sure because uh, it, talking to, again, people in the White House and on his campaign, they saw um, you know, the comments that were made a couple months ago about the by the Virginia governor as a, yeah, as a big right. political opportunity. <laughs> um, and the president generally has seen uh, the issue of abortion and by extension – sort of packing conservatives on the Supreme Court as a way to expand his base. Uh, the president, I think, is obviously not somebody who um, evangelical Christians would naturally sort of um, uh, decide to, to support based uh, on uh, right. no, I, <laughs> his behavior and a, right. a wide variety yeah, of comments. I think that's a safe, safe, uh, a safe assumption and bet. Right. But, but has been extremely popular with them because he has sort of said, hey, make this bargain with me. Uh, I will come in and I will uh, get conservative judges uh, appointed to the court and everybody has the eye on the ball of, of abortion uh, and overturning Roe v. Wade. And so I, I am, I, I take your point about him being silent on Twitter and I'm sure that he wants to navigate this carefully, but I don't think that this is an issue that he's going to shy away from on the but campaign. In, but in, you know, we know in 2018 there was this massive turnout of women, and a lot of women abandoning the Republican Party, particularly in congressional races now, over not so much this issue, but just just general health care, particularly. Yep. Right? Uh, the, these are women. The party Republican Party's got to get money, and if the num, one of the number one issues the Republican Party is pushing for is an open ban or severe limits to Roe v. Wade. I mean, well, what we've seen uh, time and again, it's, whether it's choice or whether it's um, immigration, is that Donald Trump believes that the strategy that worked for him in the past is going to work for him again, which is I need to turn out my base, yeah, ex yeah. you know, hard right conservatives at a extremely high clip and then just try to, you know, knock knock down the Democrat in the eyes of those moderate suburban voters, women, um, or the left, and so I, I think that that is more likely to be the formula that, that Trump pursues than one that says, "Hey, let's let's try to moderate things. Let's try to not freak out." You know, 
uh, female voters. I mean, that ship is <laughs> yeah. perhaps you know sailed. If if uh, for Donald and, Trump. And one final point: we talked about this at the very very top of the hour, but not everybody was with us then. Um, so this this is an uh, an act yesterday by the president that got totally buried uh, in the news, way way inside the New York Times and the Washington Post today. Uh, who is Conrad Black, and why did he deserve a presidential pardon? So he's this you know, crazy uh, newspaper mogul who um, was convicted of basically uh, messing around with the way that bonuses were paid uh, without approval of the board of his company when he sold a bunch of community newspapers off. So it was basically a scheme to avoid paying taxes. He's convicted of fraud uh, because of this. The Supreme Court came in and overturned half of these convictions because they said the law was written poorly on whether or not you kind of had this. Did he serve any time? He did. He served three and a half years. There was uh-huh. also an obstruction yeah. of justice. Anyway, uh-huh. point being, since he's been released from from jail, he was deported back to Canada, has spent the last few years just writing positive things about Donald Trump, coming on TV and saying positive things. They're old friends from Palm Beach. Trump went to his wife's birthday party back back in the day. All this sorts of th- all these sort of things. Is he a member of Mar-a-Lago? Uh, I'm not sure. I well, not anymore because I don't think he until today was allowed back in the United States. Although oh, oh, <laughs> perhaps oh, he's right. able to, to get back <laughs> get back to uh, to Mar-a-Lago or, or the Trump Golf Club down there now. And so it, it was. What one of the most striking things was is a, a pattern is that uh, Conrad Black had a lot of celebrity sort of backers for this this pardon push and that's something that obviously has has appealed to president trump before one would have to assume that his pardon did not come from the list from the regular department of justice procedures where they review people who are now in prison and recommend to the president which ones deserve a pardon uh based on the fact that the president personally called him to inform him yeah. of the, that he was being pardoned i would suspect that, that, that that's uh, true. this is another pardon for uh political buddy right yeah, I, it, yeah, it certainly seems that way. All right. Hey, Justin, great to see you. Thanks so much for coming in, and thanks for being uh, along for the ride for a long time. Yeah, huh? thanks, All right. thanks as always. Uh, great. When we come back, Brian Katulis joins us from the Center for American Progress. He's their man on national security and counterterrorism issues. Talk to him about Iran and a whole lot more. Coming up next, a quick break, and we'll be right back here on this Thursday edition of the Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Make it Thursday, May 16, uh, the Bill Press Show. Here we are. Great to see you today. As we come to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, bringing you the news of the day and uh, your chance not only to find out what's going on, but to uh, tell us what you think about it and respond to it. You do so by going on Twitter, sending us your comments on Twitter, at VP Show, uh, with the White House considering a plan to send up to 120,000 American troops to the Middle East. Uh, we thought it was a good take to look at some of our, a good chance to take a look at some of our national security uh, counterterrorism issues with um, the man from the Center for American Progress in charge of that whole area of issues, uh, Brian Katulis, who was an early guest on the Bill Press Show, and we haven't seen you for a long time, <laughs> but welcome back. Thank you. We were we talked when we were ending the war in Iraq, remember, about a decade plus or so ago. There so. are a lot of parallels people have made between the buildup to the war in Iraq and now this, what's what we're seeing uh, in Iran. But I hold that thought there sure. just a sec, because 
Uh, before we get into this, we do have a little bit of breaking political news. Peter? As president, I will take on the wealthy. I will take on the big corporations. I will not rest until this government serves working people. As mayor of the largest city in America, I've done just that. De Blasio for president, guys. Donald Trump must be stopped. I've beaten him before, and I will do it again. I'm Bill de Blasio, and I'm running for president because it's time <laughs> we put working people first. All right. Uh, there he is. There he is. I don't know, was it maybe... My sound mix was off, but it's, uh, the music was a lot louder than he was. It was very loud, very dramatic music, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But that is, uh, in case you missed it, Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York, um, running for president, announcing today uh, about half an hour ago on Good Morning America with George Stephanopoulos. And then he is off to uh, Iowa uh, for an event later today, and then he's on to South Carolina. He becomes the 23rd um, I've got the list here of 22 of them, just adding Bill de Blasio's name as the uh, 23rd. So, Brian, feels getting crowded, huh? Yeah, we're going to have to call in a fire marshal on this primary election. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the field is too crowded, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, but but, but it, all of them have a lot of good ideas, and that's the main no, thing. No, I know. Yeah, they do. Yeah, right. And, and, and to, to, to hear those ideas from different voices and different perspectives, I think is a good thing, as long as people keep the debate on the level and keep the focus on what the interests of the country are uh, writ large. And it'll be interesting to see whether some of these latecomers, uh, I'm, I'm noted earlier that all the latecomers are white males. Right. But whether some of the latecomers will have time to uh, build up enough name recognition and get enough grassroots donors to qualify for the first debate. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be the first hurdle that many of these people have to. <laughs> Which uh, is uh, it, it's like, like a, a month or so. Uh, from now. A week and 10 days from I mean, a month and 10 days from now. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so. June 26th and, uh, and 27th. So uh, Bill de Blasio is in. Uh, Steve Bullock, governor of Montana, is in as of uh, two days ago. Uh, And while Bill de Blasio was on Good Morning America, um, Steve Bullock was in New York at the same time on CNN. So they're they're making the rounds. And Beto O'Rourke was at the dentist. No, I'm sorry. (laughs) Not at the dentist yesterday. At the barber, right? Yeah. Yeah, he was getting his ear hair trimmed, I I saw. Right, which we have to see on a video, right? (laughs) I, I thought after the dentist video, we wouldn't see any more of those videos, but... Right. Uh, too much information. Yeah. I, I think it's a little bit too much. TMI. Huh? Yeah. Somebody, a lot of people have pointed out, like, yeah. imagine if one of the women running for president live-streamed one of their hair appointments and the sort of what they would get, right? Right. That. But Beto just sort of doesn't care. Or how about getting their nails done? Or right. Right. Uh-huh. Like, it's just weird. Well, it, what I find particularly weird is that Tuesday night, uh, the better one on Rachel Maddow to say, I've I've decided that I have to take a different approach to running for president. It can't be this folksy, in-your-face, you know, <laughs> so kind of tweeting do? thing. And then two days later, <laughs> he's, yeah. he puts out a video uh, at the barbershop. Well, that points to, I mean, this is my view, uh, a problem with a lot <laughs> of Democrats uh, who run for office is they talk about their tactics and what they're going to do in their campaign. When what we hear, and I've heard we, we've just done this opinion research with Americans on what they want from foreign policy, they want to hear ideas. They want to hear fixes and things like this. They don't want to hear this is which base or part of the base I'm going to appeal to. 
And and if I had you know one bit of advice, and it's it's free advice, amateur advice, is stop talking about the campaign to- uh, tactics mm-hmm. and what you're going to do, and and, and talk about how you're going to fix problems this country's facing right now. Yeah. Which, yeah. by the way, I think is what Elizabeth Warren is doing. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. She's big, one of many. And, and there's- Big a, policy ideas yeah. that she's putting out there and, pardon me, obviously thought through, solid proposals. Right. And like them or not, you know- Exactly. She's out there with a lot yeah, of- Yeah, people are hungry for that. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's going on with Iran is, should we be concerned? Uh, yesterday, I was concerned when I see that John Bolton has put this plan for to send 120,000 troops in front of uh, Donald Trump- yeah, the Washington Post this morning headlines that Donald Trump doesn't like this plan. Right, and is not happy with John Bolton, kind of, uh, you know, with all this saber rattling. So, what are we to believe? Well, first, you got to start in the region, which I go to the region about once a month or so for my my work. It's a tinderbox. There's a lot of tensions there. Iran causes problems, but then some of our best friends cause problems too. What I think is happening right near right now is that Trump's so-called maximum pressure campaign on Iran, his pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, his effort to throw on more sanctions on Iran is provoking a reaction. And you see some of these incidents uh, in the region, there's some threats, there's some genuine threats and we shouldn't stick our head in the sand about that. But then there's a real problem with what I think John Bolton and crew have been doing, which has been overreacting and misreading, I think, and misinterpreting the in- intelligence. Does that sound familiar? We, we, we <laughs> yeah. Might... <laughs> no, I, I, yeah. I... Yeah. And, and I think what we need... So. The, the, the two big problems here is, one, we, we don't really have a steady hand at the till here. Uh, we don't have, uh, in, in a commander-in-chief, a man with a plan. I mean, we, we see that in China. We see that in other places. The second is you got a team that's in disarray. Um, that really doesn't actually have what we call these interagency meetings where they coordinate. You have a lot of people freelancing. And I think that's what's happening here with John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. And it'd be interesting. You never know with Trump. Uh, uh, Bolton's head could be on the chopping block uh, within a matter of a few days if if some of these reports are true. But the bigger storyline is we got a president that really doesn't know what he's doing and he doesn't have a team that's with him. He can't even round up a posse in the West Wing. How's he going to do it in a place like the Middle East? Right. Um, you, you, you mentioned um, maybe uh, overreacting and maybe even inventing some of the intelligence or exaggerating some of the intelligence. There are, there are to me, real parallels between what we see here and what we heard in the buildup to the war in Iraq. Do you see the same? Oh, absolutely. But what's different is that uh, <laughs> you have many people, especially in Congress and on both sides of the aisle, uh, not being uh, taking this sort of hook, line, and sinker in the way that you did back yeah. in 02 and 03. You have uh, not only Democrats, but you have even people like Lindsey Graham, who on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays is a lapdog for Trump. <laughs> and then on the rest of the days, he's sort of on his own. He, he was raising questions about this. So I think there's this once bitten, twice shy dynamic, which is very healthy. And we should we should ask tough questions about what's going on there. Right. Um, what is the... Is, was there any one action by Iran that triggered this response? Um, well, there were a series of uh, actions, uh, I think, and then some threats. If you, if you read this morning's New York Times, and in my telling, and I talk to people in the U.S. government all the time uh, for my work, um, that's a pretty accurate read of what the debate inside of the administration is. And there's signs that people, some, some forces in Iran were issuing or starting to issue some threats to U.S. troops in places like Iraq and Syria. Uh, there were missiles, uh, new types of missiles that were being put on ships. Um, and again, these are sorts of things that I think every administration should look carefully at and figure out what's the best way to right. keep our people safe. Right. 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 But but 
leaking plans to send 120,000 troops to the Middle East, sending B-52 bombers and aircraft carrier into the region, and doing it with such fanfare raises all sorts of red flags uh, there. Uh, I, read, I, I read that report in the New York Times this morning. I must say, uh, maybe it's a skeptic in me, but do you really think that Iran would fire a missile, I mean, be dumb enough to fire a missile at a U.S. warship? Um, it might. And again, we talk about these countries as if they're uh, singular, uh, solitary actors that, that are unified. Um, but just as I said with the Trump administration, there's division and disarray. There are different wings and there are different factions. And uh, there are some pretty hardline uh, elements inside of Iran. Let's not forget that there were U.S. soldiers, uh, hundreds literally killed in Iraq at the hands of Iranian-backed militias. We know this. This is just a simple fact. Mm -hmm. So it may not be a command and control decision from the top down uh, to do this, but there could be elements that are trying to test the waters here in reaction to Trump's, again, pushing this crisis with a maximum pressure campaign on Iran. Right. So the last time that we heard John Bolton talking about um, military options on the table, boom, 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 was Venezuela. Right. How'd yeah. that work out? Well, it's it's still in disarray, and we really don't have a plan. And that's again, I mean, it, it, it it hasn't gone on long enough that that we have to say that the administration has failed to get Maduro out. Oh, absolutely, he's he's still there. And and look, I don't think regime change. We should have learned from Saddam Hussein and Iraq. This is not a, a very good option. <laughs> At the same time, we I think we should be in favor of. I, I'm a progressive who believes in freedom and and, and democracy. Sure, we, we just uh, shouldn't, yeah, but not not at the gunpoint, right? Right. Um, and there are there are people in Venezuela who have been suffering. We we often fail from our side of the ledger to talk about the the human rights abuses in a in a place like Iran, um, um, and the fact that they sort of what they do to uh, homosexuals and gays and things like this, religious minorities. But this does not mean we should go to war, right? We sh we should actually lift our voices up in support in the way that I I think we should have during the, the Green Revolution back in 2009. Again, not military options. We should have learned uh, from, from the Iraq War that those things don't actually work and, and, and make things worse. Uh, I'm going to go back to Iran for just a second because the one I find somewhat confusing is, okay, um, we don't want um, either Iran or North Korea to become the next nuclear power. Yeah. Right? Well, North Korea already. I, I, have, yeah, right. Yeah. There's a little problem with that, which yeah. North Korea already is. But so in one case, we got a country that refuses to stop building nuclear weapons or to give up its nuclear pro program mm -hmm. that we're and we're buddy buddies with that country. Right. Now. Yeah. And then you got Iran, which did agree to give up its nuclear weapons program. Yeah. And did, in fact, do so. And we're threatening war with them. Right. I mean, do we have this backwards? Well, what we do, uh, what's interesting is that these countries look at how we handle other files, right? So the Iranians look at how we're, uh, we dealt with North Korea. And in North some Korea's got to look at how we dealt with Iran. Yeah. One interpretation, I don't subscribe to this right now, of Trump's actions on Iran, because again, I don't think there's any coherence there. It really is Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, hardliners freelancing. Right. Uh -huh. But one interpretation is this is just how Trump flirts. Uh, how he tries to get a date with the Iranians and get a photo op uh, by September or so. Remember, fire and fury. Uh, mm -hmm. He was talking about North Korea. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. like a year later, he's desperate to go on a date with Kim in North yeah, Korea. Yeah. Again, I would not now subscribe. Now a second date. Now he's talking about a third one. Yeah, I would not subscribe because I think the red flags are so high and the warning signals are so high that we need to sort of block and check <laughs> any reckless sort of pathway to war here by Bolton and crew. 
But you never know with Trump. And that's that's the bigger problem. That's what we found in this recent poll we did on U.S. attitudes on foreign policy is people don't like the fact that this is a president that doesn't seem to have a plan on China, on Iran. He's just sort of making it up. And they see other countries like China actually having a plan, you know. Uh, while we're talking about the Middle East, so it's a story in the New York Times yesterday that um, at some event in Israel, our American ambassador to Israel, whose name I don't even know, yeah. um, said that there were two reasons that Israel was doing uh, so well and and growing and the economy growing and everything. One is because of the very close relationship between Israel and the United States. And the second was because Israel's on the side of God. Right. And, and God's on the side of Israel. Right. Uh, how does that help? Um, well, <laughs> well, the only thing that that helps is, I think, Trump Trump's conservative evangelical base. A lot of how I see, and I used to live in Israel and Palestine, um, um, and I go there regularly, and a lot of the Trump moves, like his move a year ago to move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, it really is not connected to any sort of strategy for success in the Middle East. Uh, but it definitely is connected to a strategy to respond to a conservative Christian base that strongly backed Trump, which is ironic when you think oh. I'm a Christian and and I look at Trump as a human being. I'm, I mean, again, I, I'm a, such a Christian, I can't pass judgment on him, <laughs> um, really. <laughs> but but you see the cynical game. And I think what David Friedman, our ambassador in Israel, who himself, um, he, he's, uh, he's very hardline, sort of very right wing, and has said all sorts of things and done done things that I think are dangerous in our politics and bad for Israel as well, which is trying to make the support for Israel uh, a partisan wedge issue in our politics, which I think is bad for the U.S. and bad for for Israel in the long run. Right. But I mean, anytime, and I've written a book about this, how the Republicans stole religion, anytime somebody puts in, throws God into the political mix, asserting that God's on my side or God talks to me or God tells me to that we have to invade Iraq or, or, you know I mean? Yeah. This is dangerous territory. Yeah. And implied when you say that Israel's on God's side or God's on Israel's side is that God is not on the Palestinian side, right? Right, right. And it's a false choice. Or anybody else. Yeah, it's a false choice, really. And what I see in the long run, and nobody talks about Israel-Palestine anymore, unfortunately. I think we're going to uh, with the Kushner plan coming out and then failing. It's going to fail, quite likely. But my point is you can be pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli at the same time. And in fact, you have to be uh, <laughs> if, if, if for this all to work. Uh, I think that's, uh, uh, yeah, I think that's a very safe ground. I think it's absolutely true. Uh, and we used to, I mean, it, it wasn't that long ago that the prime minister of, Is- of Israel believed that way too, right? And talked about and promoted a two, two-state solution. Right. Which ben- Benjamin Netanyahu has just, destroyed right yeah Any i mean chance of it yeah i mean you've had successive israeli governments that have um made it very difficult and and i i don't know if that it's impossible just yet uh because i think there's enough of an impetus on the israeli side and then on the palestinian side to say look we want our our nationhood and our ideals sort of respected in a different kind of political arrangement right now it with all of the territory grab and what's what's been happening um or not happening uh it doesn't seem likely but uh, I, I think we need to keep sort of th- that idea, at least on life support, and figure out how uh, we can help Palestinians have live in dignity and justice. I, I would hope we could go back to the time we can get both sides to the table and where the United States could still maybe be there as a um, 
the middleman or whatever. Uh, honest broker. But, honest broker yeah, yeah, was the yeah, phrase yeah. I was but looking I, for. I've yeah, got a but. bold prediction for you here, Bill. It ain't happening in the next 18 months under Trump. Uh, I think you're right. Uh, but but I, I, I'm not going to take that bet because I hate <laughs> to lose, uh, lose money. Um, before we get, I want to talk about this little report again. But yeah. what do you see today as the greatest threat to our national security? Are we, in fact, if we think about it as a military question, are we like fighting the last war? Is the real threat today cybersecurity and not Yeah, that's military? up there. Uh, that's number one. I would say when I hear that question, I think the greatest threat is ourselves and our division. Um, and the fact that we are so distracted and we spend so much time fighting each other. And again, we never really had a bipartisan unity uh, on national security even during the Cold War. But at least we had a basic sense that some of these things we need to work together to keep our country safe. Yeah, there was a, like, it's almost a national security club in right. Washington, right? Right. Conservatives, progressives, but, and they may differ in how they reach there, but at least I've talked to, I had a conversation recently with former national security advisor Bob McFarland. Right. Right. Who's very concerned about the fact that this working together toward what we all see as the threats facing the United States. Yeah. That possibility. No, and I do that in my intellectual work, and I've been skewered by some of my friends on the left for trying to work with organizations like AEI. Uh, yeah. But look, I don't agree with them on a lot of issues, but, but having uh, a, a, an honest conversation where right. we can disagree civilly and then agree on whatever we can, I think is essential at this time. <laughs> so that's number one. Two, you mentioned cyber. This comes out in the poll as a leading threat that many Americans are concerned about. Why? Because they see that their credit cards have been stolen at Target. They see the at a practical level. It's not just what Russia has done to infiltrate our elections, which is a, another practical thing, or what China does. They see these new threats emerging. Another lead, lead threat, which is right before our noses, is climate change. Uh, climate is seen as a national security threat that has spillover implications. If you think the 60 million plus refugees that we see in the world and migrants is just the end of it, I think it may be the start. If you look at the way that climate is impacting Mm. Uh, sub-Saharan Africa, parts of the Middle East, including Iran. Iran has severe water shortages. So the issues that we don't talk about when we're talking about troop movements and plans and things like this are the things of real human security that actually are, the are, I think, the ingredients, if, if addressed, to, to true stability in places like, uh, like mm -hmm. the Middle East. Right. Um, is the Pentagon aware of, uh, does the Pentagon consider climate change a national security issue? It used to, and under President Obama, they actually had many people at, at a top level uh, considering this and implementing plans to, in, in very pra practical ways. How do we adjust our base presence that are uh, where it's vulnerable to sort of flooding and things like this? Now, because of this rhetorical shift and the very negative shift by the Trump administration to deny climate change, it's not as much of an emphasis, I or think, the way it was. But there's still people. They, work, yeah, they may not even be allowed to talk about it. Yeah. So in just a couple of minutes, we'll get you back to talk more about it. What do you find in this uh, report? America adrift. Uh, number one is that Americans want to hear their leaders talk about foreign policy. There's a myth of isolationism. But what they want to hear are, are two main things. One, they want America to change the course. Trump's foreign policy is deeply unpopular. 60% disapprove of it. Uh, he's stronger on the economy at home because of how the economy is going. So number one is they want a different argument. Two, they don't want to hear your 10-point plan on nuclear proliferation or things that aren't they don't see connected to their lives. They want arguments that say, we need to invest here at home to compete abroad. And it's that second part 
that is essential and in the minds of many Americans. They know that we live in this world where we're competing with China, with other countries economically and on other fronts, and that we actually need to be pra practically involved. They, they want a different pathway forward that connects those global issues to their lives and says, this is how we as Americans will actually be improved by staying engaged in the world, by not overreaching, not having unnecessary wars, but investing in who we are so that we can compete with other rising powers like China. Right. But I, I'm surprised that you, you're, you're one finding is Americans do want to hear about foreign policy. I mean, oh, absolutely. I get the impression sometimes that Americans don't give a damn, right? Yeah, so long as it's connected about... to their to their lives and they see sort of their lives impacted by these uh, effects. And, and in a sense, what we find is that the whole landscape also of uh, in the United States of national security opinion, those labels that we used to use, neocons and liberal interventionists, right. mean nothing because they none of those camps really have strong support. The, the four main camps we see are one, Trump nationalists, which are about a third of the of the of the country and they're they're probably not moving. They're hardline immigration, they're in favor of military spending, but not much on wars. Uh, second camp are the traditional internationalists. I consider myself in that camp, you know, more mm -hmm. towards the center, whether Democrat or Republican. A third, which is pretty large, we call global activists. These are people I think that uh, candidates like uh, Elizabeth Warren are appealing to. And then mm -hmm. about 20% just don't care. They're disengaged. Yeah. And we should recognize that, that there's some who just simply won't. But for the for the 80%, there is, I think, an open field for people to talk about foreign policy. Uh, is this policy up online? Or it is. is it yeah, it's online? at the AmericanProgress.org. AmericanProgress.org, where you can find this uh, report. America Adrift, How the U.S. Foreign Policy Debate Misses What Voters Really Want. Uh, check it out. You can follow Brian Catullus there, too. And, Brian, thanks for coming in. Great. Thank you. Have a great day, folks. See you tomorrow. Bill Press Show.